Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. I'm Tomo. And this is Track Walking. This evening, uh, we have another, I guess, interview, but more conversation. Um, Seth and I are pretty excited to have Tom O'Gorman on with us. How you doing, Tom? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I'm... I told you about my weekend, but overall, I'm uh, overall I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. Um, so you and I met through Grid Life, and actually, I I have fond memories of the first time we actually interacted even a little bit. It was at a very 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 wet Mid Ohio, like three years ago. Isn't it always? And you, Oh, <laughs> as it turns out, and you were helping out with the beginner group, which I was in. And so I followed you in my very stock slow Miata as you drove. I think it was Scott's Scott Giles uh, Jeep Trackhawk. Just a just a Grand Cherokee. Yeah. Oh, just a Grand Cherokee. Yeah. Just a street car. And. Uh, and I was having trouble keeping up with you <laughs> on a very wet mid-Ohio track. But that is literally where I learned how to drive on a wet track was behind you in a Jeep. That's not where, that, like, that wasn't your first track day, was it? I I want to say that was, like, my second weekend. <laughs> I did not know that. I had no idea yeah. that you went from that to, to now in that time frame. Yeah, almost oh, yeah. immediately. It's, it was. It's been a sharp, steep decline. Holy in, cow! Uh, in all of this, uh, I had just gone to the fall special, like the fall before. But yeah, that Mid Ohio was the first one of the year, and right before my first one lap of America. <laughs> uh, that was part of your ex- your required experience for one lap, right? Yeah, driving the wet. <laughs> <laughs> Try to keep up with Tom and the Jeep. <laughs> you are wild. So, yeah. So, anyway, enough about me. We're actually here to talk about you a little bit. <laughs> um, you're. I love how, and I know you and I have talked about kind of your origin story and all of that. Um, how did you? Can you tell? the story of how you funded and got going, I guess, at the more professional level with the Honda Fit and fill in the gaps as you f- see fit. Uh, see, that's uh, a requirement. If you race the Honda funny. Fit, you got to play into all the puns. So I think for me, it, it rewinds a little further back to, to I mean, even starting I learned to, I, I fell in love with racing at mid Ohio, hanging off the fence in the S's watching racing when I was in diapers. And it was just something that really like sunk in. And I only ever had racing video games. I was a hot wheels kid. I was like anything that was cars was, was my absolute favorite, but I, I kind of had an interesting perspective on it because we weren't involved with it at all as, as a family or as anything. Um, but we had, this exposure to it that I I never really related to the driver. I never really related to anything, but I loved the motorsport aspect of cars. 
And um, that kind of spun into my cousin got into autocross. He's about 10 years older than me. So he was into it already when I started to be, you know, an early teen. And when I turned maybe 14, my dad got a Miata and was exposed to autocross the same way that that I was. So he he kind of found that through my cousin and and he and I started autocrossing together. That um, that was my first real true experience in a car driving getting to you know play with a car and because even my before cousin, you got your license yeah i was i was 15 and a half so i had like my temporary permit where it was only legal that my dad ride with me or my my parents ride with me but that's awesome uh that's yeah awesome. my first I, I i just got to relive this recently we were talking about like driver's ed and i had been autocrossing for like months before i went to driver's ed classes and i was like they handed us paper plates and they were like, you're supposed to hold the paper plate at, you know, nine, <laughs> nine and three or 10 and two. And I'm like sitting here with a paper plate in my hands going like, I'm already a race car driver. What, what are you yeah. talking about? You know, where's, where's but, the shifter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I, I was really fortunate to have that exposure through my cousin to already being nationally autocrossing, um, when I even learned what autocross was. So I, I got into competition really quickly and I got into it at a pretty high level really quickly because of his exposure for me. Um, so seven years of autocrossing led to the realization that when I won my first national championship, there was nowhere further to go with autocross. So I could either be an autocrosser mm -hmm. for the rest of my life or I could try road racing. So I had saved sure. up enough money through working my job at the time to buy a road racing car. I did one season of club racing and uh, kind of accomplished everything that I had set out to accomplish in that season. You know, I laid out my goals and and checked all those boxes and had the same realization that I can club race for the rest of my life at whatever level or I can try for for more. So I bought this. Can, can I ask? Yeah, can go I for it. ask before you go on what? So when you move from, you know, you were essentially racing before you actually had your license for seven years and you decide to kind of see what the next step would be. And you, so you start the actual road racing. What you said that you had goals, like what, what were your goals? My goals coming from SCCA national autocross to SCCA regional club racing mm -hmm. were, I wanted to get my my full racing license okay i wanted to get my um i i wanted to race uh i, I think it, i think i said four full full race weekends mm -hmm. and i wanted one of them to be the the arc which was the american road race of champions which was a race at road atlanta that was in my mind heralded as like the top regional club race that, of the of the year um, that was a that's a big deal yeah so i i wanted to do those those three things it was you know get my license race this number of times and do this specific race so and, not so much results based but just experience like i want these experiences yes exactly okay. and however i did it those was what it was okay. um so I, I did those those things, um, and I didn't only do those things, but I actually won at all of those races that I went to. And that was, I think that's where the mindset of like, I, I need to either do this the rest of my life or I need to try the next thing because I've kind of already checked the boxes on this, you know, 
this level, whatever you want to call it. So that's when I bought the Honda Fit that you referenced. Um, I sold mm-hmm. my Civic that I was racing. It was like a ni- 1990 Civic. And I, I bought this Honda Fit, but I used all of my savings and money to, to buy the Fit and I didn't have any spare funds to race it. So that's when I did a crowdfunding campaign that let me um, kind of put it out there that these are my goals. I want to do, you know, the same way I did my checklist. I want to do yeah. one pro race and I want to do one SCCA national majors race, which was like the high level of, of SCCA club racing at the time. Sure. So I kind of set those goals, but I didn't have a way to pay for it. So I put it out there as a, as a crowdfund campaign that um, I was looking to raise money to do these number of things. And I did some incentives. If you, you know, contributed that these are the things that you can get back out of it. But I think in general, the crowdfund campaign was a success um, which I raised my goal, which was $8,000. I raised the goal to, you know, go pro racing um, because I had at that time eight years of autocrossing and club racing under my belt that really gave me not only a good network of people, but also th- those network of people acknowledged that I had put in the work um, for myself and put in the investment for myself up to everything that I had to give to make it happen for myself, but I needed more. Um, Now, when you got that feedback from the people you were racing with and that you had gotten to know through racing and they told you, you've got what it takes or you've got something special, did you believe them? Did that sound just crazy to you? Like, did it, was the way that they were talking about you, did that make sense to what you we're talking to yourself about does that make sense yes um i don't know how this sounds but i think i had already convinced myself and i think that might be why it worked that everybody else was already convinced and was willing to help support me because i it never crossed my mind that if i tried to do it that i wouldn't have the opportunity to be successful and looking on it from from now or looking at it from you know, hindsight, I don't know what I was thinking. Like I had, there's no, (laughs) there's no reason that I could have gone to those races and been successful. Like I went to a race by myself. Like I didn't even have my parents. I didn't have a friend. I don't have a a person with me that helped me work on my car. And I I don't, I mean, you've seen me at the track. I don't know how I thought that was a good idea. (laughs) But at the time, I think there was a healthy lack of information that I was delusional enough to to think that there was no way that I wouldn't have the opportunity to be successful in trying. And the you hard don't part, know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. And the hard part was just getting there, and and I mean, legitimately paying for it to to get there to to happen. Yeah, um, you're fairly notorious for not being a mechanic. Right. That's a, I've, I've heard a few stories where, where they're like Tom with a wrench is one of the most terrifying things you can see yeah and i was i was pretty lucky that like the class i was racing at the time is b-spec or like you know the pro equivalent was tcb which is the exact same thing and the only thing that we had to do was make sure we passed tech by making sure we had like not the not the not too much camber you know we had ride height maximums we had camber maximums um 
we had you know the parts that were allowed on the car but that was it so there was yeah. there wasn't a lot for me to mess up which is check the oil tighten yes, the lug nuts exactly um and trust me i came pretty close to messing it up a lot of times but there really wasn't that much <laughs> for me to mess up so i was pretty lucky in that circumstance that i got in at the right time in the right class in the right kind of car that someone at my reading level could handle you know the assignment <laughs> nice that's awesome <laughs> So you you did B spec and how did you do? Well, um, the first weekend was a disaster. Um, we did three races at Mid Ohio, and most people don't even know that I did this weekend. But I did three races at Mid Ohio. I got taken out in two of them, and I got penalized in the third. Um, so I went home with you know my tail between my legs and a broken race car on the trailer, thinking like, well, I tried, that didn't work out. But then I realized through some friends and, and through my own research that there was one more race in the year that I could make, and it was at Laguna Seca. And if I got my car fixed and I went out to Laguna, that I could do it. So I, I fixed my car. You know, It was a broken axle and a couple of like control arm stuff in the uh, back of my car. Fixed it myself somehow and um, towed the car out to Laguna Seca. That, that weekend at Laguna Seca, I finished um, second, third, and fifth in three races. So, um, okay. in that weekend, I also met a lot of people from Honda racing and I had some circumstances where they needed to help me out in getting some parts and things. And I also got some attention from road and track magazine. Um, so I met a number of people from Honda racing and I met a couple of people from road and track magazine that ended up writing an article about the crowdfunded racer, quote unquote, that took it uh -huh. to the pro racers. And um, that kind of combination of things was enough that I had enough momentum that when I went back to Honda Racing for the next season to ask them for a fit to race in the full season, like a new competitive, good to race Honda fit, yep. they said yes. And, and that was my beginning of the journey with Honda Racing. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I... I do. Rem I think I even remember that article, um, reading it in hindsight, that it, it is very odd when you show up to one of those events because they are fairly large, even in B-spec, fairly intimidating. And you show up by yourself with a car that you can't really work on a whole lot yourself and you're there with the backing of at least hundreds of people who tried to get you there. Um, and then, yeah, and then you got uh, some significant help from Honda Racing. So what was your, the, the step you took after that? What was it? Um, so that was 2015 is kind of the, the year I just told the story of. Um, Yep. In the off season, I put the proposal in with a with a friend to loan us the Honda Fit to race in 2016, and the deal okay. was that we would race it in club racing and pro racing in the same class, which was B spec. And you know, really, the only change we had to make was the tires. So he raced it in club races, I raced it in pro races, and we would try to win the championship in the same car in the same year. Um, and they loaned us the car, but I had to pay for everything myself. So I kind of did the math on sure. everything and realized like 
uh, like bare bones, I could do the season on about $30,000. And my job at the time paid me about $28,000 a year. So my thought was, you know, I have a couple of thousand dollars in the bank. I have a little bit of a savings account. I can, I can do this season and I can zero the year. Worst case, if nothing happens, then I've just, you yep. know, got a wash. You know, I'm not any yep. further behind necessarily, but I don't have any more savings. As long as I don't you know, wreck the car or, or anything that puts me out significantly financially, then I'm okay. Um, so that's that, such that was an that optimistic season. way to look at it. Yeah, I don't. It's, I mean, a, it's I, incredibly optimistic way to, to say, like, if nothing goes horrible, everything will go great. Yeah, <laughs> I think that that was still some like that that like healthy naivete or like disconnect from reality <laughs> that it took at the time to to think that way. But um, sure, it also was kind of you know I was very fortunate that when I did my budget sheet, my dad looked at my line item for hotels for the year, which put my budget up to close to $40,000 and was like, instead of spending almost $10,000 on hotel rooms, why don't we buy an RV? I'll front you the money. We'll stay in an RV. We'll tow the car with the RV and we'll go to all the races, stay in it. And then at the end of the year, we'll just sell it. And then it'll be like a zero on the line on, you know, on the spreadsheet. Um, and nice. we, we did that and, and we sold it at the end of the year. So it was, it was one of those things where I had plenty of people and plenty of resources helping me finagle the situation but it still took sure. you know something different than what most people experience in pro racing to make that situation work um by so the, we won by those the championships. grace of others what's that by the grace of others yeah very very intensely so that's kind of across the board that's my story <laughs> that's awesome yeah and you won and you won the championship yeah Pretty, pretty handily. We ended up winning the championship with, um, I had an autocross, a couple of autocrosser friends that ended up being my crew. I had a, mm -hmm. my crew chief and my engineer, as I make air mm -hmm. quotes for the audio, um, that Quite were autocross capable. friends who are people who have like a, a, a really strong diligence to their own experience with motorsports. They're people like, like I see with, with you and Becky Scott, when you're at the track. You guys are so diligent about the way you collect data and the way you go about your own program. The people that were helping me out, Andy and Renee, are people who yeah. had their own 10, 15, 20 year experiences doing their own programs at that level of dedication that when they came in to help me, they just applied their own experience to what I was trying to do or what we were trying to do. And it turned out that we were really, really good at pro racing because it's the same thing you know it's not it's not any different it's collecting data it's being methodical about setup and about you know check checklists before and after every session and sure. data review and all that stuff and for three years actually we we did the b-spec car in 2017 or 2016 we got to do the honda civic in 2017 and 18 mm -hmm. and they came with me everywhere we went and it turned out that yeah. we were kind of better at doing pro racing than everywhere we ended up um you know whoever's tent we ended up under and that was not necessarily me that was them sure how what was that like for you to have two people experienced like well-versed well-experienced in motorsports to have gifted you so much time and experience just to be there and help out what 
I don't even know what the right question is. Like, what was that like? Well, I felt really fortunate. Um, but it also felt really natural because we all were, we, it was one of those things where we would have been hanging out in the paddock no matter what. It's just that those circumstances brought us together to be hanging out in the paddock together. And that was the paddock that we were in. So yes, we were there for a job and yes, we were there to, to accomplish a task, but mm -hmm. I, I was almost numb to that. They were as good as they were, or that they were a part of my program because it felt so natural. Um, and it was really funny to learn, you know, in hindsight, a couple of things like Andy and Renee used to autocross against each other decades before and they right. weren't necessarily the best of friends when they were autocrossing against each other because of <laughs> how seriously they took it and they had to have a conversation coming into the season to say whatever our personal differences are we're here for a job and that job is is you know tom's program and they ended up being the best of friends because when they were at odds as competitors obviously they were at odds but when they were on the same task on the same team yeah, their their skills complemented each other perfectly, and they ended up being like the best of friends under the tent. So, um, I think it was really cool to see not only people who come from a grassroots motorsports background supporting somebody who comes from a grassroots motorsports background, but also to have people who were competitors and not necessarily like the best of friends coming in, or even like mm -hmm. didn't know much about each other, have this bond coming into professional racing as grassroots racers and then becoming friends through that experience. What in your time with Renee and Andy, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, like we've talked about, they brought their expertise and probably a lot of very, at least known ways set up tires, um, focus, what were some unexpected ways that they, I don't know, either helped you or that they gifted you some like pearls of wisdom that were completely unexpected? Um, in a, in a like tangible racing way, um, Andy taught me setup and testing in a way that I had never thought about before because he had a very methodical, um, a B testing method, you know, method that was, yes. um, I had never been exposed to doing that. I, you know, with autocross, it's a little more shooting in the dark or at least the people that I was driving with. So we went to, we were lucky enough to go to a couple of different private days at either a, te uh, you know, a couple different tracks where we were doing, you know, shock sweeps from 10 to zero and we were testing everything in the middle and, and he taught me kind of like big changes are more important than little changes because you can get an idea of where you're going with setup and his, his method for testing setup and engineering of a race car really taught me a lot. Um, but I think the bigger thing was the way that they isolated me from the, um, struggles of racing, specifically professional racing that allowed mm -hmm. me to be kind of on this cloud nine all the time that I, I didn't really realize how much I might've been missing. Um, 
just simple things like with in the seasons that we were placed under a tent with um, another team and it was kind of like us as a unit coming under another team's tent and there might have been struggles and, and um, kind of tensions that we didn't foresee that they isolated me from because you know I learned in hindsight that certain things were happening and certain tensions were happening and I didn't know about them and that was intentional because you know these are people who are not only you know really experienced racers but they're also corporate professionals and business professionals who are in their 40s 50s and 60s who have decades of work experience that when they have a, a tension or a, a a a problem happening in a work environment their work they're used to handling them so yeah. i was i was not necessarily exposed to all of the tensions that were happening around what i was trying to do and what around what what I was doing with Honda or who, wherever we were at the time, um, that if I was with different people, I don't think it would have been as graceful for me because I might've had to have been involved or might've had to manage the people that I was bringing along with me. And they put me in a position that I, I didn't have to worry about it. And a lot of times I didn't even know about it until yeah. days, weeks, years after, like I'm still learning stuff that I, I didn't even know happened in 2017, 2018. And that's because they just kind of handled it and they had an agreement that their job was to make sure that all I had to do was focus on marketing myself and driving. How, how do you feel about that? I guess years on now learning all this new stuff that was happening. Do you, I mean, do you feel like you missed out on something or I, yeah. I, I don't know. I guess I haven't thought about it necessarily other than that. I feel lucky. But okay. there, it's yeah. it's kind of fun. To, if anything, it's kind of fun to learn about the the conversations that were happening, and it's kind of like a point of pride to learn how they handled it. Specifically, mm -hmm. Renee, like I got to learn how she tried to isolate me from dealing with any of those things because, as far as the team roles were concerned, she was the crew chief. And it was her job to deal with certain conversations. She took it upon herself, I should say, to deal with certain conversations. Um, you know, there were times that with one of the teams we were working with that the, the team was responsible for supporting us in, you know, labor help and in giving tools and things like that. And when their day was done, they would go home and they would, you know, one day they left us hanging. And by us, I mean, Andy and Renee, like they didn't have any access to the tools they didn't have the support from the extra hands on deck that they might have needed so sure. the next day renee pulled the team manager aside and said we are a part of your program whether you like it or not this is what the agreement was you are responsible for giving us you know the the support the extra hands the tools whatever it may be and even though maybe your cars were done we're under this tent too and we weren't done and you left us hanging and that never happened again. And I didn't know that that happened until, I don't know, a year later. So I, I could think, see Renee like being quite good at that. Yes. And I think that genuinely comes down to, you know, she has a motorsports experience, but she's a, she's a business professional. She works for, you know, a, a giant fortune 500 company where she has to have those conversations all the time. And if it was down to me to have those conversations, I would not be as graceful um, because I don't have the experience and I don't have the, um, you know, corporate breeding 
to deal with them in a way that is both graceful and productive. I would be either graceful or productive, but I probably wouldn't be both. (laughs) Yeah, with lots of wisdom there. Mm -hmm. So after after your two seasons in the Civic, right? Yes. After two seasons in the Civic, you got an opportunity to effectively move up um, with Honda still. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I um, for timeline, uh, I went from 2015 was the crowdfunding year. 2016 mm-hmm. was the, the loner Honda Fit year. 2017 yep. and 2018 were the development years for the Civic SI that you're referring to. And then 2019 was the year that I got to race the Civic Type R um, TCR car. And the biggest standout to all of that progression was every year had its different kind of situations and challenges. Um, The first year was it's, you know, crowdfunding year, paying for dipping my toe into pro racing. Um, 2016 was my first full season of pro racing and figuring out a way to pay for it and make it happen that uh, a number of people were coming with me. And we, we basically had, you know, my parents camper that they bought and, a 10 by 10 pop-up with a loaner car. Uh, 2017 was the first time we were dropped under a tent as our own, you know, part of the program to a a race team that was already existing. Um, But we were supposed to integrate with the team. 2018 was, we were our own little team under a bigger team's tent. And then 2019 was the first year that me as an individual were dropped on a race team to drive the car. So each year was a little different and 2019 was probably the most challenging in that I didn't have this support system of familiar faces and familiar approaches around me because I was dropped under a tent that was different, you know, more conventional pro racing, but different from what I was used to. Um, And to, to walk into that situation and I basically showed up to Daytona for the roar, the roar at the 24, which is the beginning of January I didn't even know who my teammate was and we had six of us under the tent that at some point some of some of us were going to end up as teammates with others but we didn't know who was going to be what and I was Hana's representative to race this car and uh I didn't have a safety net around me anymore so that was the the new challenge of 2019 last year to show up to this situation where it was my job to not only be the professional for a, a manufacturer and be the professional for the team that was placed there by the manufacturer, but also from a work perspective, give my feedback on car setup and be the, I felt a personal responsibility to be the benchmark for that team. And uh, that was something different than the, the years past where there were maybe, you know, either financial or logistical challenges, but there weren't necessarily professional, I'm a race car driver challenges. Right. Yeah. I even in even in hearing you talk about that it it almost seems like I can almost feel the weight <laughs> as you're telling the story <laughs> of you, know, you have to ditch your teammates, you have to kind of ditch your family so to speak and you've got to be in this place with unfamiliar people, unfamiliar car with uh sounds like a good list of responsibilities and expectations placed on you 
is that a common experience at that level? Does, if one were to keep rising through racing, do you eventually, do you think eventually everybody gets dropped into that level and they have to deal with it? Or is that something unique to your experience? I don't know. I think some of that is self-defined, you know, like it wasn't necessarily told to me when I walked into that situation that it was my job to be the brand manufacturer or, you know, the brand um, representative and the manufacturer pro driver or anything. Like I kind of put that weight on myself. Um, But I I think it's more normal for if you're a pro driver, um, you walk into a situation where you're not used to, you, you don't know any of the crew. You don't know any of the engineers. You don't know the team owner more than maybe dealing with them on a business, you know, deal. Okay. Um, you may not know your your teammate until that season. Um, I think a lot of that is pretty normal. Meaning, meaning my my experience with it is pretty normal. Um, and that's part of the part of the reason that it was out out of the box for me is because I was used to dealing with people that I knew and I was used to being there until the car was done. You know, if you're, if you're working on the car until 10 PM, a lot of times the driver's job is done at four or 5 PM, but the crew's not done until 10. And when I was responsible for my own program with my friends working on my car, I was there till 10 anyway, because we were all there as a unit. And now all of a sudden I didn't have any, real reason to be there past when my job was done. So that was a a big shift in, you know, I was, I was with a team that it, it was normal for the drivers to leave when the driver's job was done. And we were almost in their way if we didn't get out of their hair at a certain point. Um, but I also think that part of that was like self-induced in just me trying to do the, the best that I could for myself. And then also for, you know, at the time, Honda, to to do a job. Was racing still fun for you at that point? Yeah. Like as you as you went, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was no hesitation there. <laughs> no. No, because I mean, it's you. Know, we kind of started at autocrossing with friends and family to you know your own little tiny, literally B spec car to all this stuff with different challenges and stuff, but driving was still it for you oh for sure and like i said i was i was isolated from the the hard parts enough for a long time that i could just like have a good time like i've always had this theory that i didn't become a professional race car driver to be rigid and structured and like be in bed by eight o'clock after leaving the track at five and going to the gym and making sure that i'm you know in in peak you know whatever mindset shape whatever Uh, I think that if I'm having a good time, I'm performing well. And that's consistently true across the board, whether it was like an autocross 10 years ago that I was hung over showing up to and did well anyway, or pro racing last year. Um, the, the challenge at the time was almost to take it seriously enough that I felt like Mm. I was, um, not offsetting everybody else who took it as seriously as I was, if that makes sense. I, I still, to a level, I was, I, I definitely felt a little out of place at all times because like I said, I didn't become a race car driver to wear my golf shorts and my, or my golf pants and my, my polo to the racetrack and be a buttoned up professional, you know, like we're there for a sure. good time. 
and what race car <laughs> driver is not there for a good time. So I was always a little out of place for that. But in general, I like like part of that was I was always having the best time. <laughs> I think of everybody in the paddock. I think a lot of times I was having the best time. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I remember, I don't remember if it was last year or the year before, but, you know, you were saying that part of what made you stand out in the paddock and maybe maybe a little bit of isolation because of it, but when you weren't driving as your job, you were going to racetracks and hanging out with race car people and doing some instructing on the side and just like in the culture and I remember you saying that that was out of the ordinary for the level of driving that you were doing. Yeah, big time. I, I found I found over you know the last couple of years it wasn't as obvious early on, but um, I felt like pretty much the only person in professional racing, quote unquote, professional racing that would have been at the racetrack anyway if it wasn't. Um for pro racing so you know i would have been at a grid life race or an autocross or a track day weekend and and anything like that was that was what i lived to do before and it's what i strived to do at the time but as i met more people and as i talked to more people it became very clear that the people that i was around wouldn't have been at the racetrack had it not been for those races and then to stand out beyond that it became more clear like there were a number of people that i met as as a pro driver you know there are there's professional racing but there are the the pro drivers that i would consider they are there to make a living they're either making their living coaching and getting to race as a product of that or they are genuinely getting paid to race and then there's the pay-to-play driver um of the of the pro drivers of the drivers that are being you know they're making their career off of driving most of them will not go to a racetrack if it's not for a paycheck or they will not go to a racetrack if it's not to you know further their career and it became very clear that i was one of the only ones that no matter what i'd be going to the track because it was a good time and because it's what i love to do um so that was definitely a little weird to especially as I made some friends, you know, in, in racing, I would try to get them to come to events that I wanted to go to anyway, that I spent my downtime at. And they're right. like, no, I'd rather have time off or I'd rather just stay at home or I'd rather do X, Y, Z. And I couldn't relate to that. And it was a little weird. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I feel like I want to armchair quarterback this because, you know, I've, I've never been in your position and I'm sure you know, I, I would at least think it's all of a sudden, you know, with all these expectations and pressures and things of driving that, you know, it could suck the fun out of it. So it's like I could almost get the uh, the motivation to just need some downtime away from the racetrack. But at the same time, like hearing you talk about that, it seems like seems like something got lost there for a lot of these drivers like this. Like a bad day at the racetrack, right? Is better than... In general, you would like to think that. Yeah, but I, I actually had the experience where, you know, my, my 2019 season, we we won our first two races of the 10 race season, and then it kind of nosedived into the ground between mechanical failures and, and things like that. So um, I, I had a really hard time with the just lack of results that were coming out, even though... 
Um, we were always in a position to do well. Circumstances outside of just the straight up, you know, lap times that we were turning kept us from doing well. And I genuinely felt weighed down by the performances that we were having at pro races and just the, the straight up like results on paper that we were having. And it took me, you you remember this, I, I had a, a slew of pro races that were just bad, like the car broke Tough. and and it was really hard. It weighed on me really heavily. And I had a week yeah. that between a couple, after a couple of those races, I went to SCCA's autocross nationals for, for a five day week. And then I came straight to Road America for a Grid Life Club race and mm. did, you know, three more days at the track there. And that full week of enthusiast, you know, grassroots racing and, and driving was the rejuvenation that I needed to enjoy my professional racing again, because the weight of the professional racing started to weigh on me and then doing something for no reason other than the joy of it is what yeah. the reset was where maybe those other people's resets were staying home and seeing whoever or going to the beach or whatever their lifestyle allows. Mine was like, I'm going to make sure that I get to the track no matter what, and I'm going to have a good time doing it. And that was the reset I needed. Yours is standing in your underwear, hanging off the fence at mid Ohio, getting pumped to watch race cars. Go Did you around. see me in my underwear on the fence? <laughs> you saw that? <laughs> Yeah, it's no, funny. What's your, interesting your dad is the, was telling that story over the weekend too. <laughs> the fact that that you hang out with, I don't want to say you hang out with the normal people that race, um, because my social circle doesn't uh, contain any pro racers other than Tom O'Gorman. Although I'm not uh, not that connected with you, you're in my social circle because I know a bunch of people who race GLTC and do that sort of thing, and. Yeah. Because of that, you are, oddly enough, kind of the most famous race car driver that I follow right now, which seems a little bit weird because I don't want to say I don't care about anybody else at your level of racing, but but the fact that there, there's like this Venn diagram overlap thing of, of you in professional racing as well as you hanging out with the rest of us makes your pro racing career relevant to the rest of us in ways that other pro racers aren't. Um, and I talk about this uh, a bunch. I know some, some pro level motorcycle racers and they're like, you know, you don't, you don't have to worry about getting mobbed when you go to the grocery store, if you're a professional motorcycle racer, because outside of the track, nobody cares. Um, and and so there's there's a small dedicated group of people that care, and I think it's that way with pro racing, um, in general. Like there there's a dedicated group of people that care passionately about this sport, and then the other ninety nine and a half percent of the world would be like, oh, "Cool, your name's Tom. What do you do for a living?" Because they have no idea. I'm a um, professional sunglasses model. Professional sunglass guy. And and for some reason, your your interaction with the amateur racing community has made you way more relevant to me and my friends than the typical pro racer. So uh, I know you do it for fun, but we also appreciate the fact that uh, that you're there. And it, it, we have a Venn diagram with pro racing that we don't usually have. Because like you say, they don't, you know, your peers in pro racing don't hang out at grid life in general. Um, so... 
Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, that was that was just it. You're you're the famous guy that we know, which is cool. True. <laughs> so the the end of 2019 was rough, and I don't. I'll be honest. I don't know a whole lot of details, and I'm not sure the details necessarily matter in this context. But you essentially lost your seat with the TCR car, despite having even gotten a, a test run in the the new NSX and GT3, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, when I saw that when I saw that test ride. I mean, I, I don't know what you were going through, but I saw that test ride and I got really excited for you. <laughs> um, I mean, it just seemed like it was just like this epic rise that, I mean, you know, and, and it didn't turn out that way. Um, again, I don't know if you, if you want to go into the details or if you want to skip the details and go to the experience, but you had kind of this amazing ride and it's certainly not over but this you know it's just one thing after another thing after another opportunity and all of a sudden you lost your ride and I remember being heartbroken as you were at the roar at the 24 with your helmet and no ride mm-hmm. um, I don't know where wherever you want to go whatever you want to talk about that well, I mean, I'll like the the umbrella statement above all that is I I'll give myself the leeway to say I think I did a really amazing job for myself to enjoy what I got to do while I got to do it. And whether I get to do it again or not, like I enjoyed and did everything right in the moment. Like I will absolutely give myself that that slack to say like I, there's nothing I would have changed in the moment because I was consciously always aware that almost no one gets to do this, especially in the capacity that I got to do it. You know, I got, I got genuinely paid for a short period of time to, to race cars and to be at racetracks and do my, my dream. So there's nothing that feels like a loss necessarily. Um, for, for a short, like timeline wise, um, basically I got the call after a verbal commitment from, um, the program that I was going to get to race again this, this season. Um, I got the call on November. Yeah. 2020. I got the call on December 30th that I was no longer going to be in the seat starting January 2nd at the roar. So I had three days notice that I wasn't going to be in the, in the car. Um, I went anyway, I did my best to be around, um, kind of hang out. We still had some plans that was maybe going to be a GT3 ride, maybe going to be, you know, a marketing aspect for the year, maybe going to be a um, part of this um, NSX testing program that they had that was going to be going on kind of behind the scenes. Um, And a number of those things were still trucking right along up until about March. Um, And then obviously COVID hit and a lot of those things went out the window as well because the financials and the logistics all weren't possible anymore. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of like a double hit. It was like, I don't, I don't really know to even explain to you what happened back in December, January. Um, but I was still pretty confident that I had something and some momentum going on before 
about March, April. And, and even through March, April, uh, there was a lot of hope still in just figuring out like what the reality could be. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of those opportunities went away because of the reality of not only like the, the circumstances of the year, but the economics of the year. Um, I was fortunate enough to get paid to do a job that most people will pay to do as an experience. And for that to be my reality was great. But I don't think even economically that's going to be possible for, who knows, three, four, five, ten years, whatever. Um, so that became my new year. Is living you know, that. I, I, I hear you talk about this and, you know, about just enjoying it for the moment, kind of the, you know, no regrets. I loved it when it was and we are where we are now. And like... <laughs> I, I I just don't I can't relate to that and I so appreciate the fact <laughs> that you because I I feel like what I would just be so frustrated for what could have been and never mm-hmm. was that I I would just would have been bummed for the this fantasy of continuing on and all of this instead of what what feels and what sounds like just this very present focused on now um experience and enjoyment that you had for all of this and i get i get totally lost in the future and and certainly the past like I, i have a hard time being here now this is one of my failings as a race car driver actually um and it, it's interesting to hear you say that, like that you just, you loved it. And I mean, I, I'm sure you had a rough few months for sure, but uh, I admire <laughs> your, your outlook on all of that. Well, I, uh, yeah, I think that's part of the, part of the maybe coping with it is that I, I, I absolutely, not only did I do everything that I could in the moment to enjoy it, but I did everything that I could to do a good job. And I still believe that I did a good job. Um, But I think one of the things that like echoes with me everywhere I go is something my mom used to say all the time when I was a kid and growing up is she tried to teach me the lesson of like, could I control the situation that I'm in? And uh, a lot of times it would be like in a conversation about, well, what are the circumstances? What's the you know, what are the moving parts? Well, can you control that? And a lot of times the answer was no. And she would say, well, then, you know, you can't control it, move on, or not, not necessarily move on, but you know, do do the best to control what you can control and focus on the things that you can that you can control. So um, when when no are matter you... how good of a job I believe that I did, and no matter how good of a you know job I did to enjoy what I got to do, I couldn't control the situation. I, I still haven't figured out. Obviously, there's a lot of reflection that goes on, a lot of thinking about what could have been, but uh, I I can't even to this day figure out eight months later what I could have done to do something, you know, either better or differently to create a different situation that I regret. So, yeah. when when are you best at doing that? When are you best at? identifying what you can control and allowing that to be enough first like what do things 
in your like do you need to be getting enough rest um do you need to be hanging out with friends every like what what are the circumstances or the the things in your life what does that need to look like for you to be able to do that well when i'm doing my best um i'm my own worst enemy i'm my own worst my my biggest critic um there are events you know when it comes to driving there are events that i've won that i know that i didn't do my best and i leave disappointed and there are events that i haven't won that i leave proud as hell of having done what i did um so if i know that i did my best that i couldn't have changed anything that i did in the moment then it's really easy for me to let go and say well i couldn't have controlled that i couldn't have controlled that that's okay that's okay and i think there's a there's a healthy combination of being able to identify the reality of that you know tangibly but also being my own worst enemy and my own worst critic like being intensely hard on myself to say like that is not some that is not something that i should let go and i'm gonna lose sleep over that you know whether it be a small like i i picked the wrong side in a racecraft moment or whether it be a, a a business relationship kind of conversation whatever it is um i'm incredibly hard on myself with that stuff so if i can genuinely walk away saying like i did that i did what i could then I'm at my best to acknowledge that I did what I could and, and enjoy it. So racing resumes in 2020. Mm -hmm. You don't have a professional ride. A uh, few things were in the works and a few things fell through. And I guess to, to sew the, the thread some more, you take control of the cars and items in your own life and you turn them into this tiny yellow race car. Would you call it control? I don't know if I'd call that control. <laughs> choices, <laughs> adult I, choices were made. Yeah, there was, there was some chaos. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I had, a, I had a, a series of about six months that, as I, as I said before, there were a number of Honda rides that fell through, a number of Honda situations that fell through, and there were a number of, like obviously sitting in my bedroom uh, well, rewinding when, when everything shut down, I was living with my parents and I sat in my bedroom playing racing simulators all day, every day, oh, I day after day after this. day after day. And I, I'm not the best at it. And like I said, I'm my own worst critic. I'm, I'm incredibly hard on myself and I know that I'm not the best at it and beating myself up on it every day, day after day after day was not the healthiest mental place for me to be. Um, but because a number of those things all fell through, plus sitting in my bedroom playing video games and sucking at it in my mind all day, every day, it was like, I need to reclaim this, this, you know, thing that I love. So it was kind of a roundabout way. I, I ended up buying a street car as I was consolidating back down, you know, Honda took their, their car back and um, I didn't have a street car. So I just kind of, I bought a Honda S2000 street car. That was going to be my new fun car. Largely for the driver. Instagram likes is for exactly. what I've heard. It was luckily <laughs> the correct color blue, the only color blue as far as I'm concerned. Tomo uh, blue. And that led to my friend going, hey, you should have bought this race car instead. My buddy would have sold you that. And three days later, I bought a race car. <laughs> so I, I have a yellow Honda S2000 Gridlife Touring Cup race car now that I'm responsible for making it run. With the coolest... 
the coolest Tron style LEDs on it. That thing stands out in a night race. It's that's the hardest work that's gone into the entire car, and it, I'm glad it stands out. <laughs> I don't I could doubt have spent it. Twelve hours making it go faster, but I didn't. I spent twelve hours making it glow in the dark. <laughs> that's that's truly GLTC things right there. It is. So you're you're racing this car uh, in GLTC, which is effectively club racing, albeit I would certainly argue a very different fo- flavor of it than we see almost everywhere else. And you are still traveling a whole lot. You actually drove back from New Jersey yesterday and Mm -hmm. Ohio right before that, doing instructing and coaching and general hangs at the racetrack. So we're we're coming up on the end of a on the end of the season here. Um, We just talked about Nola, that. you're going to try you'll be at nola with or without a race cars to be determined what uh what does this winter what's this off season look like for you i don't know i think like i said we're kind of rewinding back to getting the race car in oh god i don't even know july maybe um yeah that sounds right it's it's been a rough ride to get my own car and like I've obviously told the whole story now. So my, the last car that I was truly responsible for and owned was my fit. And the worst that I could do to it was put the tire pressures wrong or like maybe mess the alignment up a little bit, but it really wasn't that adjustable. Um, or, or, you know, it was hard to mess up. So I, I'm learning a lot, a lot right now about having my own race car. That is not only a 14 year old race car that has a lot of miles on it and has a lot of wear on it, Mm-hmm. that I'm breaking a lot, but also is far more adjustable and far more um, open to the rules with Grid Life Touring Cup than a B-Spec car was. So, you know, I went in with a pretty high bravado of, I- I'm going to learn to do this for myself, and, you know, it, it can't be that hard. I-, I never thought that actively, but I think I kind of came in <laughs> with the same sort of, like, delusion that I did with pro racing that, you know, yeah. I can handle this, and... I've kind of been beaten into submission about whether or not I have any business owning my own race car. And I'm sure every person that has their own race car goes through that. But um, I think my, my goal for this off season is to figure out, you know, how exactly does my, my own program need to look for a way that is manageable for me and that I have the support system around me to make sure that I don't feel like I'm on the struggle bus all the time because that's how I feel for sure right now. Um, and, and, and then how to make the car competitive on top of that. Um, so that's, that's part of the goal um, with that car specifically, but also figuring out how to exist in a motorsport space more generally that allows me to make a living and, and make a career out of it that may or may not involve being a quote unquote professional race car driver. Because yeah. part of my experience that I've already talked about right now is that being a quote unquote professional race car driver a lot of times doesn't have anything to do with how you make your living and if I can't make my living being a driver um, in a professional race series given whatever circumstances then how can I create my own space to do that and and that may be coaching that may be you know I've been having a great time doing racing commentary um, and somehow I, I really love that 
um, whatever that means so that I can have not only a sustainable life, but then also continue to be in motorsports because that's where I just get my energy and my, you know, you talk about like an introvert extrovert where you get your, your energy off of being around people or being around nobody. Like mm -hmm. I get my energy off of being around racing and like good, genuine racing. And so I'm like, I guess I'm like a motorsports vert. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know, well, I know Jabay is, has talked about that as well. It's, you know, a lot of weekends he, at the end of a weekend, he just, he wants to wash his hands of grid life and just walk away from it. Mm -hmm. Unless, unless he can have one good race. If he yep. can have one good race, he's okay. <laughs> yep. But he needs that and, hit. And it's amazing if you have that race at the beginning and then you have bad ones, you're still bad. But if you have that last that last race, if it's good, you can ride that forever. Just walk away. <laughs> mm -hmm. At least for that weekend. Yep. Yeah, so you can't walk away. That's the problem is all right. of us. I don't know how many of us have like Sunday afternoon, you're like, I'm done. I quit. And then like Wednesday, you're like, all right, so what's coming up this weekend? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Already talking about plans on the drive home. Poor Becky. Yeah. And that's Scott going. So what are we going to do next year? Like, dude, Nola's in like two weeks. We haven't even finished this year. What are you talking about next year for? <laughs> yeah. I, I told you, I told you my problem with being in the now is I can't stop looking ahead. <laughs> right. We can learn from each other. We should, we should, we should talk more. I, I we should do like a Voltron thing where you two combine and turn into the perfect race car driver oh my god we could have rings <laughs> we could just like put our fists together and yes create that's... like the ultimate gltc to con cap captain planet of racing uh, that would be fantastic <laughs> do once you got I, I don't want to say like racing famous but you were you were pretty hot commodity around grid life i mean you were like you were the professional race car driver there. At least this was my impression around grid life. Um, and it was, it struck me. I remember this from, I think it was last year fall festival that you had offered free of charge at the time to do data review, video review for anybody who might want it. And I remembered asking you, kind of like the the coolest most gorgeous kid at prom that you think everybody asks them to dance and you said i think like one or two people had approached you to for this free help from a professional race car driver what is happening <laughs> why why are why were people just not approaching you was it because they felt that maybe you weren't approachable like i just i i couldn't understand it because i couldn't wait like i felt like i was taking up too much of your time watching my stupid videos um i've, I've actually thought about this before because as as little ex, you know t as few takers as i got when i was doing that for free because it was good experience for me at the time to drive anything and anything and it was also fun and i i got a charge off of dealing with other drivers and having them find success and if i could help them find that it was great um but 
now that I'm trying to, you know, sort out my coaching model where I'm doing, you know, data sessions and, and coaching sessions and setting data laps for people and, and trying to tailor it to more affordable model that instead of hiring a coach for a thousand dollars a day, I'm doing it for a hundred bucks a session. So, you know, for, for a driver like you, whose weekend would be ruined if you, it costs an extra thousand dollars, but if it costs an extra hundred bucks and you find that extra, you know, bit, then it's totally worth it. Sure. That's kind of the model I'm going with now, but either way, um, the, the driver that is, they weren't even taking me up on it for free at the time. I was thinking about that. And I think part of it is because driving is a very prideful thing. And mm. to do to do something that uh, is 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 rooted in in tangible results and rooted in pride is um, it's not often the first thing that people think about for you know if I can go a little quicker people are quick to spend money on their car but they're not quick to spend money on themselves and I've had a hard time figuring out how to break that or or define that in a way that makes people interested in getting some coaching or getting some perspective on how they might be able to drive the car differently. Um, but I also think part of it is just when you're on the track day weekend and like I've experienced this recently and I'm sure you can relate you guys as like going to the track for yourselves. There's just like not a lot of time. <laughs> like the, the yeah. weekend gets away from you really quick, right. really totally. fast. And like the moment your weekend goes off the rails even a little bit, like you forgot to put gas in your car for a session or like <laughs> the car has a hiccup, like you set your pressures wrong for a second, immediately the weekend is derailed. And to have people uh, dealing with that, even if there's 300 people there, there's, you know, only a few people whose weekends aren't derailed <laughs> at yeah. any given time. So at the, at the time, it never bothered me much. Now I'm trying to figure out how do I get it so that... Uh, those people who may be dealing with derailing weekends are still engaged with me. Um, but I think it's probably 60, 40 of those things, you know, 60%, it's easy to have your weekend derailed 40% driving is the last thing people think of as a point of improvement, whether it be by being a builder or being a proud person. Yeah. And especially around the grid life paddock, as soon as track goes cold, those claws get opened and nobody really wants to look at data anymore. Sure. Right. What's, what's it been like for, no, bet, better question, better way of asking it is what have you found that you've had to do differently because you're a gay race car driver, a gay driver, than everybody else like do you feel like you have to model yourself in a different way do you feel like you have to do better than everybody else what what do you feel like you have to do differently sure uh well this is the first time i've talked about it on a recorded anything so if that surprised you surprise if it didn't surprise you then you probably have talked to me more than like 30 seconds at a racetrack but um i don't know i've, I've been out since i was 18 um i had an epiphany that it was like uh i, I don't know i kind of like i made it public on facebook it was just part of growing up for me um but i also had some pretty formative experiences pretty formative experiences um really early on in my motorsports career that were 
you know, dealing with the leadership, especially at a couple of SECA events really early on, um, the, the regional executive of the region that I grew up in in Cincinnati, when I came out to him, we were close friends first. And then we, he, I came out to him and he said, you know, if anybody ever gives you a hard time ever, period, no matter what, you let me know. And that person will never be allowed back at the track ever again. Um, wow. And I've actually had that from pretty much everywhere that I've been uh, short of like professional racing where, you know, obviously like the, the owners of the pro series is, aren't saying that kind of stuff to me. But um, I think by growing up in motorsports from, from like 16, 17 on around basically straight white guys, like I, I've been bred to blend pretty well. And it's not like, I feel like I have to, it's just that, you know, as a person, you tend to mirror the people that you talk to and you tend to mirror the, like, if you go live in Canada for a week, you're going to probably adapt a little bit of Canadian accent. Come back with an A. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So I think I've been kind of bred to blend a little bit and I've never really had a really strong connection with the gay community. So while I'm, you know, my, my community is the racetrack. So I, I probably don't stand out that heavily to most people. But if you're, especially in the last three years, maybe if you're around me for more than 10, 15 minutes, it probably comes up. It's probably not that obvious or probably not that subtle, whatever. So I guess in general, I've never felt that compelled to avoid it because I've had that empowerment from the leadership of the groups that I've been with. And I've also been fortunate even from back in, you know, 17, 18 years old, I was a part of the leadership where I was volunteering with the local autocross group, or I was a work, I was an employee of SCCA putting on track days and instructing a group. So I was involved with grid life at a high level where I'm dealing with, you know, the owners and organizers of grid life. And even if somebody gives me a hard time, I probably know the person to go to, to let them know that somebody's being intolerant and that they probably, you know, if I really needed to, I could probably get them removed from the site. And it's not something that I carry around as like a, a powerful thing, but I've always felt empowered to to be whoever I want to be. So there's still some growing pains with doing that. Like I didn't walk around with my hair dyed blonde and, you know, rainbow colors in it five years ago, but I do now because that's what I want to do. And I don't feel threatened to not do that. But I think that also kind of comes back to the the pride conversation about like, a lot of motorsports is straight white guys and there's nothing worse that you can do to a straight white guy than threaten their pride or their, you know, their, their manhood and driving is a big thing for any person. Mm -hmm. You know, if you talk to some guy who's never driven on a racetrack, but he's proud of the way that he drives on the street, it's still a thing. So I, I do find that I think I'm also a little immune to getting problems or getting you know flack from people because i'm also successful at what i do uh or you know can hold my own at what i do sure um whereas if i was really bad i don't know that i would be as fortunate (laughs) well it's interesting even to to hear you talk about the people in leadership kind of have your back and it it reminded me of renee and andy and your paddock just having your back so that you can 
focus on what you need to focus on and do your thing and just the the amazing it sounds like just the amazing support that you've had from your family and friends and the track community i mean it's i I just i just see that thread kind of throughout your racing story has i mean and that i think ultimately is certainly what grid life um and the one lap of america produces and why certainly why i still go is because it's the cars are the language we speak but what we're doing has little to do about cars yeah it has it feels like it has everything to do with that support and that community. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's absolutely true. And that it's not only that that's where I want to spend my time and that's not where, that's not the activity that I want to do, but it's the people I want to be around. You know, yeah. all, all of my friends, virtually all of my friends over the last 13 years since I got into racing have been racing centric and I don't get along with every race car person or driving person but I've always found my home with groups within the racing community. And like you said, it's, it's genuinely overwhelming for me at times to think about like not only how much support I've had over the the last 10 years, but also like, if you think about how could I ever repay these people, literally anybody who's ever loaned me their car to do anything that has helped me progress along the way the only thing you can do is like pay it forward is the best I've come up with, but it's yeah. overwhelming to think about. Like I would be absolutely nowhere if it weren't for amazing parents, amazing friends, family, amazing, you know, organizers of events, amazing leadership in events that allowed me to get involved, but then protected me when I needed it. All of those things that it's like, holy cow, that's a big machine <laughs> that I don't understand, but I'm thankful for. I, I don't think we could have scripted a better finale for this conversation than that. Um, so that was very good, Tom. Thank you for you a, giving us your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Um, is there anything you want to plug? Any social media? Any anything like that? Well, if you're hearing about me for the first time, I'm. Uh, Tomo Racing on Instagram, Tomo Racing on Facebook. I try to stay very active in anything that I'm doing. Um, and I, I appreciate anybody who's followed, supported, no matter how much or how long you've been doing it. And I appreciate you guys for hanging out and giving me a place to talk. Honored. Honored you you came to talk with us. Um, yeah, do, do reach out to Tom. Uh, let him drive your car and show you how much faster he is in it than you are. Um, hit him up for some coaching and, um, uh, we, we need to keep you in this community and I don't think it's going to take a whole lot of pushing from us to do that. But, um, we're, the, my I, arm. yeah, I, the, this community is, <laughs> is better off having you in it. So we're very glad that you're here. So we, this is track walking. Um, we are on Facebook and Instagram at Track Walking Podcast uh, and all the podcast places where you do that, as well as the Tracktune website. So feel free to uh, reach out, comment, let us know topics, feedback, any of that. 
And thanks for listening. We will be back uh, next week with more stuff. But in the meantime, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And I'm Tomo. Yeah. This is Track Log. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.